Well, uh, I don't know if someone sent last week's message on YouTube or the podcast to Jimbo Fisher and the Texas Aggies when I said that uh, when I said that Jesus beat death and the Aggies couldn't even beat Mississippi State. I think they took that to heart. Um, if you're a podcast listener like me, you've perhaps stumbled upon this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, produced by Christianity Today. Um, anybody else have heard this, listen to it? A few of y'all have. Um, so it's a podcast talking about Mars Hill Church, a church in northwest part of the United States in Seattle area, pastored formerly by Mark Driscoll. And it talks about how they made a huge impact in front of people on Sunday mornings and they reached people that were not being reached with the good news of Christ. Lives are being changed. Destinies are being changed. And yet behind the scenes, there is this pattern of just abuse and passivity amongst the elders and leaders there, manipulation that went on. And they interview former staff members. They interview former members of the church, former founding members, and they provide this very graphic description of what happened, and they talk about, again, how it rose, and then also how it fell as well. And for me, it's a little bit, I've listened to now all the episodes. It's getting a little old now, because it's like, you know, hearing that the Titanic sank, and now everyone has an opinion of what could have been done better to prevent the Titanic from sinking after the fact, right? But here's the main takeaway, and I think this is why, for many of your friends, when you invite them to Bayou City Fellowship, they don't come. When you talk, talk to them about the Lord, they don't want to listen. It's because of this problem called hypocrites in the church. And so I think podcasts like this further talk about these things, about how behind the scenes, the leaders and others weren't living kind of what they're living out front. So what I want to look at today from Acts 5 is this, how to deal with hypocrisy, and not in the lives of other people, but namely, if we're honest with ourselves, in our own lives. Because it's easy to see the speck of hypocrisy in others and miss out on the log of hypocrisy in our own lives. And how we should approach God, how we should approach God as the people of God, as children of God. So if you have your Bibles, look at Acts chapter 5. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 5. While you turn there, I'll give you the context of what we're going to look at here at the beginning part. If you remember at the end of Acts chapter 4 the prayer for boldness and the prayer for oneness, and they're experiencing this oneness because of the persecution. People are selling land, people are selling property, and then giving those things to anyone who had need. And so at the very end of Acts 4, we see this guy named Joseph. He was a Levite of Cyprian birth, and the significance is this. In the Old Testament, Levites were not allowed to own land. They're the only tribe that did not have land, but now under the new covenant, in this church age, he buys some land, but then he hears of some brothers and sisters in Christ in need. And I imagine it was like this. It was at a worship gathering where as the apostles were teaching and preaching and sharing, that people who sold their land and property would lay it at the apostles' feet. They would bring it and lay the money and the resources at the apostles' feet so that the leaders of this church could give out to anyone who had a need. So if they knew a member of the church had just lost their job and couldn't make rent or whatever, they would help do that. So they would lay the money at the apostles' feet. Now, in Acts 4, 36 and 37, it doesn't say how much of the profits that Barnabas brought. It just says in verse 37, he owned a track of land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We don't know if it was 
100% of what he made or if his, after he paid his principal and all this sort of stuff and mortgage stuff, we don't know. But it says that he brought that money to the apostles and laid it at their feet. So this is what most likely happened. I don't know about you all, but if we did that today and we said, hey, there's this great need in our body. We've got members who've lost jobs and have a need and they've got this medical bill and this thing. And I said, hey, as the spirit lays on your heart to sacrifice and sell, and then would you now bring it up front and lay it here at, and I'm not apostle, but lay it at the feet of my feet so that the elders of this church and leaders can now help out those in need. If you saw somebody walk down the aisle and then lay down like a whole suitcase full of like $100 bills, right? A whole like in the movies, and there's a whole bag of like a $100 all wrapped, right? Lays it right there. You'd be like, man, that guy's a generous giver. Well, he must really love the Lord. He must really love God's people. And most likely that's what happened to Barnabas here is that as he laid all this money and resources at the apostles' feet, those who were watching, those who were also worshiping probably thought, man, what a godly guy. He's a Levite. He's a Jewish believer who now has the freedom to own land. And yet because of the needs amongst our body and we're one body and one family, he sold that so that they could have their needs met. What a godly guy. And that's what leads us into verse one of chapter five. Here's a contrast. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bring a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. So at this point, there's nothing wrong. He sold a piece of land. His wife sold a piece of land. And let's say they brought 80% of it and laid 80% at the apostles' feet. The other 20%, they said, we've been planning on having this dream vacation now for like the last three years. We're gonna spend the 20% on that. So there's no issue there. But look at verse three. Here's the other but. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the uh, proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died. And great fear came over all who heard about it. Young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. So here was an issue with Ananias. It wasn't the fact that he kept back some of the proceeds, some of the profits. That wasn't the issue. This was the issue at hand. He probably heard and saw what happened to Barnabas, how people were like admiring him and saying, what a godly guy. He wanted that admiration as well. He wanted people to look at him with favor. So what did he do? He probably said, hey, my wife and I are going to do the same thing. We're going to sell our property. We're going to sell our land. We're going to give it all to the apostles so they can give to all those who have a need. That's what we're going to do. But this is what happened. And I believe Anna and Fire are believers because it's the Holy Spirit they lied to. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the question is, if the Bible says greater is he who's inside of us than he who's in the world, how did Satan fill their heart? Now notice, Satan didn't fill them said they filled their heart. The heart is that part of our lives that we make our decisions, our choices. It's the seat of the will. So somehow Satan got in there with some deceptive ways and lying ways to say, you know what? You can still sell your land, keep part of it for yourself, but tell everybody else you sold it all and impress everybody. And that's what he did. Even though Holy Spirit says, now you know you're just front. You know you're just doing it for the accolades and admiration of people. And that's what Peter confronts him on. He says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he specifies, because the Holy Spirit is God, why have you lied to God? Now, this is how the worship service went. 
For those of you who complain about the times where we go an hour and 15 or hour and 20 minutes, in the New Testament on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, they would gather from the morning until evening. And this is what they would do. They would gather for a time of worship, for teaching, then they'd have the love feast, and then they'd have communion, the Lord's Supper together. They'd have a time of just all-day affair. They would have all day, they'd be gathered as the church. So this is what happens. Now, interval, about three hours elapsed, verse 7, and his wife, Sapphira, came in, not knowing what had happened. So this worship service has already been going on for three hours, at least. Ananias has brought some money to the apostles' feet. Why'd you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why'd you lie to God? He falls dead. They carry his body out. Three hours later, the worship gathering is still going on. Ananias, so Sapphira comes in, verse 8, and Peter responded to her. Look at this. He's giving her out. Tell me whether you sold the land for this price. And she said, yes, for that price. She had an out. She could have said, no, 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 no. My husband was lying. We kept back part of it. Sorry about that. We asked for forgiveness. And she said, yes, for that price. Verse 9, then Peter said to her, why is it you have agreed together? Put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she collapsed at his feet and died. And young men then came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Look at this, verse 11. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard about these things. Again, a repeat of earlier where it says, at the end of uh, verse 5, about great fear. The Greek word there is phobos, which we gain the English word phobia. This deathly fear came across all those in the church and those outside the walls, those in the city. How would you respond if today there's a time of response and we came forward for prayer, we came forward for something and you saw someone that you're in community group with, someone that you've been worshiping next to for months or years here at Bicey Fellowship fall flat dead right here. And then some of the young men in this church, you, you can take them out. And I say, go bury them, right? And then their wife comes in towards the end and says, hey, what happened? What's going on? We say, hey, did you sell the land for this? Or did you lie about this? No, I didn't know about that. And she dies. Great fear would come on this church. And not only that, it would make the front page news. Houston Chronicle. Sunday, October 10th, by City Fellowship. Two members, beloved members of the church, fall dead in the middle of the worship gathering because they lied about how much they were giving for the sake of appearances and image. Verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they're all together in Solomon's portico. But look at this. But none of the rest dared associate with them. So the outsiders, the non-unbelievers, the outside community, they said, man, that's, that's I'm afraid. However, the people held them in high esteem. Because God dealt with the sin and they dealt with the sin, they were held in high esteem. Verse 14, and increasingly believers in the Lord began leaving the church and the church shrank. Is that what the text says? Verse 14 says, increasingly believers in the Lord, large numbers of men and women were being added to their number. Talk about a very odd strategy for evangelism. Talk about a very odd strategy for church growth. People are dying in the middle of the worship service because they've lied to the Holy Spirit, because they're all about their image and being respected. They're dead, making the front page news. And with that, fear grew in the city, all throughout the city in Jerusalem. 
They were held in high esteem. And this is Luke, the doctor. He doesn't tell us how they died, even though he's a doctor. He just said immediately fell dead. And then before he names names and numbers, he says 5,000 came to faith, 5,000. Here at this point, he says, I can't even count the number of people who are coming to faith in Jesus. I've lost count. Because these believers are now taking God seriously. They're taking his word seriously. Verse 15, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out in the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. What he's saying here is in the ancient tradition, that's what they believe, that these mighty men of God, or these mighty spiritual men, if their shadow was on you, you'd be healed as well. And that's not saying that's the biblical thing to do. He's saying, I'm describing like a lot of parts of Acts, being describing what's going on. Verse 16, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together as well, bringing people who were sick or tormented with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Here's point number one. There are consequences for messing with God. And that's the message the title today, Don't Mess With God. I was gonna call the message, Don't Play With God. Same thing, don't play with God, don't mess with God. There are consequences for messing with God. There are consequences for playing with God. There's consequences for taking God's grace for granted. There's consequences for taking God's mercy for granted. There's consequences for saying, I'm forgiven, which you are, for all your sin, past, present, and future, but not taking the consequences and your relationship with the Lord serious. There's consequences. There are consequences for messing with God. Now, I know what you're saying. For those in the room saying, but isn't Acts like this transition period between the Old Testament and the New Covenant of the church? Yes, it is. And when we see people fall and die, like Achan and others, wasn't it because it's Old Testament? Aren't you preaching Old Testament stuff? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. I'll quote Joel Davis, our community's pastor on this. He's always upset that when we talk about this, we don't talk about the context. So again, Sundays, they would gather, worship, teaching, teaching for hours and hours and learning and community together. They would eat together, love feast, and then they would have the communion. And everyone, it was like the old school church potluck. Everyone would bring food. And what was going on church in Corinth is this. As they would gather on Sunday mornings, the wealthy were bringing really, really delicious meals and lavish meals, and the poor could not afford it. So they were not bringing anything or they're bringing meager amounts of food. And so this is what the rich did. The rich said, hey, we're gonna eat first. If our poor brothers and sisters in Christ ain't bringing nothing, we get to have first dibs on the table. And then they were saying, now we're gonna take communion to say that we're all family, to say that Jesus is our king. So look what he says in verse 27. This is a communion passage, verse 27. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself or herself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to, uh, to himself or herself if he does not properly recognize the body. Look at verse 30. This is New Testament, y'all. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. And a number are asleep. Now, what Paul is talking about, weak and sick, we understand. But when he says asleep, what does that mean? It doesn't mean what some of you are doing right now. It means that some of you have died physically. God has taken you home. 
So he says this, but if we judge ourselves rightly, verse 7, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, so then my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Even if you brought a ton of food, the most delicious food, and you have brothers and sisters who are not able to bring food or bring meager amounts of food. And you say, you say, I've got a right to eat first. You say, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, have him eat at home. So he's speaking again to the wealthy. If you're coming saying, I'm bringing all this food and I'm not going to wait for my poor brothers and sisters who didn't bring anything, eat at home first. Enjoy a delicious meal first and then come so that you do not come together for judgment as the remaining matters. I will give instructions when I come. Y'all, this is New Testament. And Paul says that when we publicly take communion, and next Sunday we're taking communion as a family, he says, examine yourself. How the Holy Spirit examine you? And the context is, am I discriminating against my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I treating others preferentially? And he says, if you are, repent of that and confess it to the Lord. And practically now wait for one another to eat. New Testament. Because some of you don't do that. You're weak. You're sick. Some of you have even died. James 5.13 says this. James 5.13 through 16. James 5.13. Is there any among you who are weak and sick? Any among you who are sick? If you're sick, what does he say? Call for the elders of the church that come and pray. Anoint your head with oil and to pray. And if there have been sins committed, they are forgiven. Then he says this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So that word confess is ex homlugeo. So when we sin, we confess it to God and confess it to those we've offended in the family of God or those in our family or those that we work with. And this is what James does. Again, New Testament. He connects sickness, sickness, y'all, with unconfessed sin. He connects sickness, illness, physical sickness and illness with unconfessed sin. So he says to us as believers, as children of God, he says, First, confess to God, God, forgive me. In Jesus' name, forgive me. By the authority of Jesus, forgive me. And anyone else that you've offended, that you've hurt, your children, your coworkers, your church members, community members, you ask for forgiveness from them. Ask the elders to pray for you. And here's what the text is not saying, though. The text is not saying every illness, every young death or premature death is always a result of unconfessed sin. I'm not saying that. Not saying that at all. There are plenty of us who get sick who are hopefully walking uprightly with the Lord. But what he's saying here again is in this context that for some who come to the elders for prayer, some who go to the doctor, some who go to the hospital, your problem isn't physical. Your problem is spiritual. Your problem is you have not confessed to the Lord that sin. You've read the word. You've heard the podcast. You've heard a sermon. God has convicted you. And rather than saying, Lord, forgive me and forgive to those who you've offended, you've just held on to it. Acts 5, let's go back there. So there are consequences for messing with God. And here's why we do it, I believe. The Christian God that we serve is different from all other gods in this sense. Most other religions serve a God who's transcendent or imminent. What does that mean? Transcendent means that he's far above and beyond. He's not like us. He's way beyond us. He's like omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Like he's not like us. He's beyond. He's, he's like not like we're human. He's God. There's a distinction. 
But then there's imminent, and other religions have an imminent God who's like everywhere. He's, he's this podium, he's the stage, he's the wood, he's the tree, he's everywhere, and he's close and he's near to us. But the God we serve is both. The God we serve is both transcendent. He's not like us. He's sovereign. He's eternal. But he's also imminent. He's close. This is how close God is. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You can have an intimate relationship with God because he dwells in you. But this is what happens. Because he dwells in us and Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. We all say, Jesus is my friend. We take him for granted. We approach him like we talk to our homeboys and homegirls. But we have to remember, though he's imminent, he's close, he's our friend, he's there in us, he's God, y'all. He's transcendent. He holds the keys to life and death. That's God. He's sovereign. You can put that headline up, true headline. And when I say headlines in the paper, several years ago, there was a church in San Antonio, large church, probably similar size to Bicity Fellowship. The elders found some numbers that just didn't add up in their budget, in their uh, finances. They went to the treasurer and said, hey, we're missing a lot of money. Knocked on his door, said, we need to talk to you about that. And he says, I don't want to talk to you. Leave me alone. The law enforcement got involved. He was the FBI. They went to his house, knocked on the door and said, hey, we need to talk to you about this missing. I was like, it's $500,000, $750,000. We need to talk to you about this. He said, not without my lawyer, slammed the door. My friend who's a church consultant, national church consultant, was kind of working in this situation. And this is what happened. That man, that treasurer who didn't want to talk to the elders, who didn't want to talk to law enforcement without this, his lawyer present, and just slammed the door. A few days later, he went to the emergency room with pains in his chest. In the ER, he died. This is the mystery. The doctors who attended to him said there is no reason at all that a healthy male should have his heart suddenly stop for no reason. That's what my friend said. The doctor said, this healthy man, a healthy male, never had any heart issues, any heart problems at all, went to the ER, his heart just stopped. And again, this is a warning, you all. God is a gracious and good God. He's a kind God. He's quick to forgive. He's slow to anger. But my prayer is this, that we recognize that though God is imminent, he's close, he's near, he's also transcendent, he's not like us. So again, there are consequences for playing with God, for messing with God. But notice this, here's some, here's some other news. Verse 17, but the high priest stood up along with all his associates, that is a sect of Sadducees, and they were all filled with jealousy. That's a theme throughout Acts, that the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're controlled of the Holy Spirit. The contrast here is these religious leaders are filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, leading them out, and he said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple area the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple area about daybreak and began to teach. So they had a miraculous release from prison. And notice what the angel said. The angel didn't say, now you've had a rough, traumatic time. You've been placed in prison for preaching the gospel, for being bold. Take a few days of R&R, &R, go on vacation down to the west coast of Jerusalem and enjoy some time away. He says, no, you were placed in jail for preaching the gospel. Now go do it again. 
So he says this, now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, that is all the Senate, the sons of Israel, this is verse 21, and sent orders to the prison for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported, saying, we found the prison locked quite securely and guards standing at doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported them, the men who he put in prison are standing in the temple area teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Again, they were being well respected by the people. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest interrogated him, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, underline this, we must obey God rather than men. As believers, we are to submit to all legitimate authority. But when that legitimate authority that God has placed over us disagrees or asks us to disobey God, we simply say we must obey God rather than you. We must obey God rather than men. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And here's Acts 1.8. And we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's a reiteration of Acts 1.8. So this is what happens. Hopefully by this point, I don't know about you all, but if I was one of the Sadducees or Pharisees or the Jewish council, one of the prison guards, I would be like them, greatly perplexed. How do these apostles escape this prison Doors are locked, guards are there. How? And we know from last week, I'm guessing that some of the prison guards and some of the leaders came to faith in Jesus Christ because of this miracle that happened. So here's point number two. Don't mess with God's children. Don't mess with God's children. If you think you love your kids, imagine how much God loves his kids. And you can even say it this way. Don't mess with God's mission. The mission is be my witnesses. Be his witnesses to build his kingdom. Go make disciples of all the nations, of all the people. That's his mission. And he is willing to protect that mission. So don't mess with God's children. These apostles were miraculously released. Now here's the other thing. This is not what this text is saying. I'm gonna say this. Just like the passage before with Ananias and Sapphira, not every illness, premature death, is because of God's discipline. I'm not saying that. What I'm also not saying is this that if you are bold for Jesus Christ, not obnoxious, but bold for Jesus Christ, whether here in Greater Houston or around the world, if you lose your job for that tomorrow, what I'm not saying is by Wednesday, the HR director is gonna call you back into the office and say, we made a mistake, you get your job back. If you go to prison somewhere around the world for preaching the gospel in a country where it's illegal to preach the gospel, I'm not saying that you will go there, preach the gospel, go in prison, and you're gonna experience this miracle as well. Not saying that, because in Acts 12, again, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. In parts, it is prescriptive. In Acts 12, James and Peter are in prison. James is executed. He's killed in prison for preaching the gospel, for being a bold witness. And yet Peter is released. I don't know about you all, but I would probably have that, what's it called, survivor's guilt, if I'm Peter, saying, James, my beloved brother, and I were both in prison for preaching the gospel. He's killed and I get out. But what I'm saying is this. God loves his children. God loves you. If you place your faith in him and God will protect you. 
I remember in seminary reading the story about Brother Yun. Brother Yun was a Chinese evangelist. He came to faith at age 16. And he tells the time of three times in his life, the government told him to stop preaching the gospel. He was in prison three times. First time, he's in prison, miraculously escapes. Second time in prison, miraculously escapes. Third time, he's in prison again. This time, this is what they do. This time, it ain't happening. The guards broke his legs. They beat him so badly that he could not walk. And it was almost like they were taunting him. Okay, now we like you see escape this time. In the middle of the night, I can't remember if it was a dream or vision or how God appeared or as an angel, God said to Brother Yun, escape, leave now. He was able to walk out of his cell unnoticed. Guards are lined up. He would walk in front of the guards and they would see him but not see him. It was like he was invisible. He escaped out of the prison and what did he do? He was preaching again. Then after he escaped, he noticed his legs. He was able to walk. So again, God's mission is too important. God's glory and fame and people knowing is too important and we see this around the world. We see where persecution is greatest, where opposition is greatest, that's where the gospel is spreading the quickest. So we see Acts 5, great fear falls on the community, great fear falls on the city and you would think the church would shrink but people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ so don't mess with God's children. One of their leaders gets a clue. Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they became infuriated and nearly decided to execute them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who's actually the apostle Paul, Saul's mentor, a teacher of law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now we're gonna see the inside scoop because again, some of these men came to faith in Christ. And he said to them in this private meeting, men of Israel, be careful as to what you're about to do with these men, these apostles, for some time ago, Thutis appeared, claimed to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined him, but he was killed, and all who fought him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, appeared in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He also perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Verse 38, and so in the present case with these apostles, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if the source of this planner movement is men, it's based on them as people, it will be overthrown, just like Thutis and just like Judas. Be overthrown. You will not be, up. verse 39, but if the source is God, underline this, but if the source is God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Amen. So Gamaliel, these apostles escape. Lock prison doors, guards everywhere. Scratching his head, something's going on here. Some supernatural is going on here. This should not happen in life. So he talks to all the leaders and cautions them and says this. He says, two other revolts, two other uprisings, two other new movements, they were put down when everything, when their leaders were shut down. They were quickly put down. But we see this ministry, this growth going on. And if this is from people, it's gonna be quickly shut down just like the others. But if this is from God, we're gonna be found fighting against God. So here's point number three. Even unbelievers will recognize not to mess with God. Even unbelievers will recognize not to mess with God. Look at verse 11 again. He says, and great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard about these things. Verse 13, but none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. These unbelievers, these non-Christians in the city, in the city of Jerusalem, in the community, they held them in high esteem. God was at work. Verse uh, 40, they followed his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. 
So underline that. Order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. What happens there is 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as a Christ. That word preaching is a word, not caruso, but euangelion, which means to evangelize or evangelizing. And notice this in verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing, rejoicing. After getting out of prison, after being flogged and whipped, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Would we be that full of joy that if we get to suffer, face opposition for being followers of Jesus, from your focus on him, that we would rejoice as well. So again, these unbelievers recognized not to mess with God. Gamaliel says, y'all, we should not do this because if we do, we're going to be messing with God. Uh, many of you all know uh, I'm one of the team chaplains for the Rockets, and please pray for our season coming up. Uh, the head coaches texted our uh, head chaplain, so it looks like we may have some inroads doing some ministry, even with all the stuff going on in the world today. But also, many of you uh, may not know this, I'm also a prison chaplain, and when we were going through prison chaplain training with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, uh, they said this to us. They said, now, you all are volunteers. You're not getting paid by us. The moment you hear that last, and the door shuts, Remember this, that while you're there with the inmates, if a riot breaks out and you are taken hostage, we will not come get you. We're not gonna come get you. So know that that's a risk you're taking. The risk you're taking to do ministry amongst this particular prison, wherever you are, is the moment that last door closes. You're there, the inmates, doing Bible study, doing a worship gathering. Something happens and breaks out. Here's the risk you're taking. We're not gonna come get you. But then they said this, there's this unwritten rule amongst the inmates. You don't touch the chaplain. You don't touch the chaplain. He's the man of God. He's here representing God. Now get this, y'all. These men, some of them are violent offenders. Some of these women are violent offenders. All sorts of crimes that you can name. The unwritten rule is this. You do not touch the chaplain. And I was baffled by that. So at one point they're saying, door closes, you're at risk, you're on your own, we're not gonna come get you. But here's some good news. The unwritten rule is you don't touch the chaplain. Because even these inmates who probably don't fear anybody, who don't respect anybody, they respect and fear God. We don't know to what level, if they have a relationship with the Lord, but they will respect and fear God. Many years ago, my wife and I, we were serving in a ministry in uh, South Dallas, an area very similar to Third Ward or Fifth Ward in South Dallas, and uh, one of our coworkers shared this story. She said the craziest thing happened. So she was part of a church, small little church in the community in South Dallas. They're making a huge impact for being such a small community church. Well, uh, a break-in occurred. Someone broke in the middle of the night and stole like their TV, one of those big tube TVs and VCR from their kid's Sunday school room and stole some other things. So the next morning, the pastor's like, sweeping the glass, cleaning up the stuff. Local gang leader comes and says, Pastor, what happened? And he said, man, our church got broken into last night. Oh, man, what'd they take? I took our VCR, they took our TV, they took some other stuff. And he said, man, that's, that's bad. A few days later on Sunday morning, Sunday morning, y'all, pastor's preaching, people are worshiping, the doors of the church open up. In parading down the aisle comes the drug dealer with his gang, his, the gang leader and his gang, They've got the TV. They've got the VCR. 
They also have the guy who stole it. In the middle of the service, they say, Pastor, what do you want us to do with them? You want us to, you know, fix them up a little bit, right? And the pastor, no, 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 no. Thank you for bringing the stuff back. You know, thank you for bringing the stuff back. We'll take care of it, whatever. And just, just let the guy go and say, hey, never do that again. Never do that again. So even in this community in South Dallas, gang leader, gang members, they recognize you don't mess with God. You don't mess with God. You can mess with that institution, this institution, that neighborhood, that gang, but you don't mess with God. And so even amongst here, Gamaliel says, you know what? We're not gonna mess with God. We're not gonna mess with God. When God's people, the church, take God seriously, you know what happens? Even those outside the church will take God seriously. The problem is, many Christians, many churches, we don't take God seriously. Because of that, the world treats God in a very flippant way as well. So here's my big idea. Take God seriously. Write that down. Take God seriously. Take God seriously. That's what it means to fear God, to take God seriously. Take God and his word, his reign, his rule, his power. Take God seriously. How do we do that? Three ways. Write this down. Number one, Hebrews 12, 28, which I read in our hearing. So Hebrews 12 talks about how God disciplines because he loves us. He loves us. As a good father, he disciplines us. The very end, he says in verse 28, because we have this kingdom that cannot be shaken, worship God with reverence and awe. Worship God with reverence and awe. This is both in your personal worship daily. As you say, I'm a living sacrifice and I'm gonna worship God with everything I do. But even collectively, because Hebrews, the context is people are thinking about leaving the church because it's getting too hard. So even when we gather Worship God with reverence and awe. Take God seriously. And I know as a culture, there used to be a time when people would dress up for church, much more formal, we become much more casual. That's all right. Dress casual, come to church, but do not worship casually. Don't worship God casually. Um, So worship God with reverence and awe. We use the word awesome too often. Oh, that was awesome. This is awesome. Awe means God is transcendent. And so we come together, and if you feel like I need to get on my knees in a posture, I want you all to have that freedom. If you want to lay prostrate before the Lord, lay on your knees and say, God, I'm in awe of you. I surrender to you. I bow down to you. Your physical body needs to do that to align your heart posture. You're free to do that. I'm in awe of you. Let me ask you this question, not a trick question. What times does the 9 a.m. worship gathering start? 9 a.m., great, great, you got that. What time does the 11 a.m. worship gathering start? 11 a.m., got it, got it, got it, got it. For a lot of people, and if this is not you, just plug your ears. They treat the worship gathering like a movie. The music worship part here, the call to worship, the announcements and all that, that's the previews. The message is the movie. I'm just here for that. But you all, if we're going to take worship of God seriously, with reverence and awe, when we gather as family, we gather, the moment we gather, the moment we hear the call to worship, that's the worship gathering. And even if we don't play songs you like and the latest hip songs, you come because you're here as a family of God, collectively say, together with one voice, we're going to worship the Lord. I'm going to let you know about this too. Our kids' ministry 8.45 8.45 is when it opens for the 9 o'clock gathering and 10.45 for the 11 o'clock gathering. 
So our kids ministry, you can drop off as early as 1045 so that you can be in your seats with a heart, hopefully prepared to worship God at 11 a.m. I got one amen. Can I get like two or three more amens, right? Our kids team gather half an hour early for prayer and training so that by 15 minutes till they're ready so that you can drop your kids off, you can come and worship collectively your heart prepared at 11 a.m. Both the sermon, the message that you hear, but also the worship that you give, your heart focused on him. So number one, worship God with reverence and awe, Hebrews 12, 28. Number two, fear God and keep his commandments, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, after you enjoy a good life, time with your wife and sunsets and sunrises and walks on the beach and going to parties and going to funerals and doing all this stuff as a wise person, he says, if I could sum up life as a follower of God who lives wisely, Solomon says two things, fear God, Take God seriously and keep his commandments. Obedience. If we take God seriously, we're gonna take God's word seriously. Not that we know his word, not that we memorize his word, but by God's grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we'll do his word. And when we're out of alignment with his word and we're convicted by it, we say we're not gonna adjust the word, we're gonna adjust our lives. So Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God and keep his commandments. You want to know, am I taking God serious? Is when God speaks, like it says in Hebrews 12, and you hear God's word, when you read God's word, what do you do? Do you adjust the word or do you adjust your life? When God says this about marriage, do you adjust your marriage or do you adjust your life, your marriage? What do you do? Number three, finally, live a life of integrity. Psalm 15 says, who can walk with God? Who can enjoy fellowship with God? Those who walk in integrity. Integrity does not mean perfection. None of us will reach perfection this side of eternity. Integrity means who you are publicly is who you are privately. Who you are privately is who you are publicly. When you mess up, which we all do, when you sin, you ask God for forgiveness, you repent, and you ask those you've offended for forgiveness as well. That's what it means to walk in integrity. Because you do not care about your image anymore. You don't care about what people think about you anymore. Because you are a beloved child of God. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. You now have freedom to say, you know what? I know God forgives me. I know I'm loved by God. And if you don't love me, you don't respect me, I know God is for me. And because of that, I can live a life of integrity. I don't need to focus on pleasing people anymore. I don't need to be like Ananias and Sapphira who want to be respected and admired by people because, you know what, I am a child of God. So number three is live a life of integrity. The writer of Hebrews closes Hebrews 12 by saying this. He says, worship God with reverence and awe because we have this unshakable kingdom. Beginning Hebrews chapter 12, he says, God disciplines you because he loves you. It's not an issue of forgiveness. If you've trusted Jesus, you're forgiven for all your sins. Because God loves you, forgives you. The very end, he says this picture, which I think is appropriate, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. I was on a writing retreat this last week and spent some time in the hill country. When I got to my cabin, the host said this, next to your cabin is a fire ring and there's some firewood. If at night you want to just put some logs in the fire ring, light it, he says, she said, you can enjoy some nice light. It gets really dark out here and you get some warmth as well. But here's the thing about fire. You have to respect fire. You have to take fire seriously. Because if you do not take fire seriously, this is what happens right here. Neighborhoods are burned up. Forests, entire forests are burned up. Parks are burned up. Because we don't take fire seriously. 
And I think that's why the writer Hebrew says, and our God is a consuming fire. So take God and his word seriously. Let's pray. God, you tell us in James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers for you'll incur a stricter judgment. So God, I, I preach to myself this message and to our elders here, to our community group leaders who have the responsibility of shepherding your people, that with this responsibility of shepherding, God, we incur a stricter judgment. So God, I pray that we would take you seriously. We take your word seriously. That though ministry can be fun and full of happiness and joy, that we would take it seriously. God, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. God, if they currently know that they've been convicted by the Holy Spirit in an area or areas of their life, have not confessed it to you, and are not desired to make those things right, maybe they've taken your grace for granted. God, that they would repent and confess to you. That rather than trying to make your word, the Bible, fit into their lives and align with their lives, by your spirit, God, that would seek to align with your word. Solomon said it best. To sum it all up, fear God and keep his commandments. We submit ourselves to you, Master. God, we want to take you seriously. We want to have a heart of worship that worships you with reverence and awe. Even if we come in shorts and t-shirt and flip-flops, casually dressed, God, we want to address you and worship you with reverence and awe. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Well, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up on my left and right. If you need prayer, they're available here. Also, I'm going to ask this. Secondly, uh, actually, and we have the app as well. If you want to submit a prayer request on the app, please do that as well. Uh, we've got these prayer cards. So last Sunday, we prayed for boldness. We prayed for reconciliation and oneness. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is if you're here today and you are someone who prays on a regular basis, if you just come on up and take one of these cards, put it in your Bible or put it in your journal, whatever you look at a regular basis, and would you commit to praying for one another for this entire series of Acts? We're going to go to Palm Sunday next year for that brother and sister Christ who submitted a prayer request. So this is your time to come up for the prayer team or to take one of the prayer requests off the front of the stage that you can pray for.